The following recording is from the Parramatta Christian Church pulpit series. These sermons are freely available at pcc.org.au. Christ is risen. Yeah, some people get it. He is risen indeed. That is the response. Let's go. Christ is risen. There we go. There we go. Every year we're just going to get better. I know we did this last year and people are like, "Ah, ah." it's wonderful. Great great to see you here. Um, I'm just really excited um, on this day. Such a great day to be alive and to be a worshiper of Jesus. Uh, what an incredible privilege. For those of you who were here on Good Friday, we had a great service. Um, and for those of you who weren't, just want to give you a, a quick recap. Um, our theme for Easter is no wonder uh, we call Him Savior. No wonder we call Him Savior. And we looked on Friday about three aspects of Jesus' work that draws out deep worship. And one is that He came as our Redeemer to set us free from the fear of death. We looked at that. And another aspect that's so powerful is that Jesus came as our Savior to be our substitute, to to pay the penalty for our rebellion and sin, to absorb on Himself the wrath of God. What an incredible reason to worship Jesus. And thirdly, we looked at how Jesus, um, because He became completely human and identified so fully with us, He's able to continue, now that He is risen and not a dead Savior, to continue to help us, to empower us, not just to understand and sympathize and empathize, though He does all of that, but actually empower us to live with our struggles, to live with our challenges and our difficulties. And so we came to this place for saying, no wonder we call Him Savior. And I, I, I want to ask you a question this morning as we continue to, to explore this theme, no wonder we call Him Savior. I want to ask you a question. I wonder, do you call Him Savior? That's my question for us to engage with this morning. That's the title of my message. Do you personally, singularly call Him Savior? Oh, I wonder... Oh, what brought you to church this morning? Maybe it's tradition. Uh, like we heard in our first reading, Resurrection Sunday. The resurrection is the critical event of Christian history. It is the dividing line between believers and non-believers. It is the central, pivotal aspect of the Christian faith. You pull this one out and everything falls apart. See, because if Jesus is no different to any other good moral person, a prophet, a do-gooder, any other kind of person, and he's still dead, there's nothing wonderful about him. There's no reason to worship him. There's no reason to gather and celebrate anything because he's not really that wonderful. But the resurrection changes all of that. So I wonder, what, what brought you to church this morning? Is it because you recognize that there's something about the resurrection that you need to wrestle with personally. Is it maybe like Malchus that you've had some sort of encounter with Jesus and it's ticking around in your mind, well, maybe this resurrection thing is really true and I need to explore and investigate it more. Or maybe you're like the centurion who's seen a glimpse of Jesus And it's prompting you to think that maybe there's more to this man than just his suffering and death on a cross. Maybe there's so much more that I'm yet to discover that makes him wonderful. 
Or maybe you are among those who've been on that journey of faith and you've explored and you've investigated and you've looked at the evidence and you've come to a firm conviction that Jesus is Lord and Savior and and you're here because you want to celebrate and worship and rejoice and, and gather with Christians all around the world to bow your knee before this wonderful Savior. Well, wherever you're at, on your Christian journey, on your faith journey, on exploring this wonderful Savior. I want to encourage us and challenge us to think about what it means to believe, what it means to have faith in Jesus. You see, faith is a, is a very interesting thing, and, and people have all kinds of different ideas about faith. And some of those ideas about faith kind of creep into their thinking about Christian faith, and can lead to a wrong understanding of what it means to believe when, when Christians talk about, I believe in Jesus. And so this morning, I want to explore that whole idea of what it is to have true Christian faith. What does it mean to be truly a believer? What does that really mean from a Christian point of view as we engage with who Jesus is? And I want to explore that under the heading of three words this morning. But looking at personal stories and this Sunday we're kind of launching our new series called Encounters with Jesus and we're going to look at over these next few weeks different people in the gospels different people in the bible who had a personal encounter with Jesus and how it transformed them so I want to encourage you if you're on a journey of faith if you're visiting with us and you're still trying to figure out this Jesus thing please just keep coming back because the series that we're going to do will help you investigate and explore Jesus, as we look at Jesus through the eyes of real human beings, just like you, just like me, who found Jesus and came to believe in Jesus. And so this morning, our last reading, we're going to look at Thomas, who is a lot like many of us. He was a doubter, a skeptic. He struggled with his belief. Uh, He's known as Doubting Thomas. I mean, he was so struggling with his faith that we kind of gave him an adjective to describe which Thomas we're talking about. We kind of sit in his story somewhere, and I hope that his encounter this morning and, and his journey of faith will encourage us and inspire us in our own journey of faith. So the three words and headings that I want to explore faith under is one, impossible, the impossibility of Christian faith. And I'll explain that a little bit, the impossibility of Christian faith. Secondly, the reasonable, reasonableness or the rationality of Christian faith. I want to explore that. And thirdly, the personal aspect of Christian faith, that it's deeply personal. So let me pray and we'll jump into the scriptures. Father, thank you for this great day. Thank you that Jesus is alive. Thank you that Jesus is risen. And Lord, that we have a firm belief and a deep conviction that that is true and that it changed all of human history. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us, wherever we are in our journey of faith, that you will arrest our attention this morning, captivate our heart, speak to our mind, speak to the very core of our being, that we might see afresh the wonder of Jesus this morning. And we pray this in his name. Amen. First word, the impossibility of Christian faith. I want you to notice that in Thomas's experience, it was impossible for him to come to believe in Jesus through his own reason. 
through his own resources, uh, through his own natural abilities. Impossible. Tom, Thomas had spent three years with Jesus. He'd seen Jesus do miracles. He was on the boat when Jesus walked on the water. He was there when Jesus raised Lazarus. He was j- there when Jesus fed 5,000 people. He saw it all. He heard it all. And he still didn't believe. See, Thomas heard Jesus multiple times predict that he would die and be raised from the dead. And yet, what we see in this story is not Thomas sitting at the tomb on the, on the Sunday morning going, it's going to happen, it's going to happen any minute now. This stone is going to roll away and Jesus is going to come walking out. It's going to happen. No, no, we, we don't see that. In fact, the other disciples have a visit from Jesus. They see the risen Jesus. And they tell Thomas, dude, you missed it. Jesus was here. I mean, he was right here in this room. And Thomas is like, nah, nah, I'm not going to build. It's impossible to have true, genuine Christian faith, no matter how obvious it is. No matter how much evidence is presented to you. Because it takes a work of God. Without God intervening, without Jesus intervening, it is impossible for any of us to come to true Christian faith. He could be standing right in front of him. In fact, chapter 20, the, the previous story is about Mary Magdalene, where, who goes to the tomb, but she doesn't go to the tomb expecting Jesus to be alive. She goes to the tomb to anoint his body. And then Jesus is literally standing right in front of her, and she can't see him. What is that? There was a story told about an, a famous actor called Cary Grant, but most of you would not we know who Cary Grant is. So I'm going to change the names so that it kind of relates to you. Let's make it Matt Damon. Most of you would know, right? We talked about Bourne before. That's Bourne, Matt Damon. So this is about Cary Grant, but I'm going to kind of make it Matt Damon. Matt Damon's walking down the street, and as he's walking down the street, this guy walking the other way recognizes him, and he goes, oh my goodness! He's like, he's so excited. He's like, you're, you're, um, you're, what, what's his name? And so Matt Damon, feeling sorry for him, goes, uh, Matt Damon. He goes, no, 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 you're not Matt Damon. You're Jeremy Renner. Jeremy Renner, that's who you are. And Matt Damon's like, no, I'm, I'm Matt Damon. And sometimes we're like that. Jesus can be standing right there. That's what Mary experienced. But see, her expectation of Jesus was different to the reality of Jesus. The Jesus she was expecting was not a risen Lord, but a dead body in a tomb. And sometimes we can be so blinded by our own perceptions of the kind of Jesus we're carrying around in our head that when the real Jesus stands in front of us, we just don't see it. We can't make the connection. We can't actually grapple and come to a point of seeing the wonder of Jesus because it's impossible to get to that place of faith on our own. We need external intervention. We need supernatural intervention. We need Jesus himself to turn up and lift the veil that's over us, to open our heart and to reveal himself to us, just like he did with Mary, by just calling her name. The second word we we talked about is this idea that Christian faith is reasonable. It's rational. And this is important to say because having just said that it's impossible and that it's not based on evidence and it's not based on rational 
internal processes that we can just think about and come to. The temptation is to think, well, Christianity is just like a myth. It's a fairy tale. It's not based on any evidence and historical information. And sometimes we have this wrong understanding of Christian faith. We have this idea of Christian faith being pie in the sky in the sweet by and by. This idea of wishful thinking. And we think that somehow faith is in opposition to evidence. And we think that the more evidence we have, the less we need to believe. That somehow, that the more evidence that we present, we, we don't need to believe as much anymore. But true Christian faith is actually the opposite. It is based on faith and on evidence. And the more evidence we have, it actually strengthens our faith, not weakens it. Because it's not like, oh, okay, all these fanciful ideas that I had in my mind about Jesus have now been exposed by evidence. No, the evidence just confirms what we already believed in without seeing Tim Keller, he says, he says this. He says, Christian faith is much more than being rational, but it is certainly not less than rational. It's not less than rational. And I love Thomas in this story for that reason. Thomas is like, look, it's okay for you guys to tell me that Jesus was here, but that's not enough for me. He's a lot like us. He says, I want evidence. Show me the evidence. And I want, I'm not talking about just, you know, fanciful. I want concrete evidence. I want physical evidence. I want to touch Jesus' side. I want to stick my fingers in the holes. I want to stick my fist in his side. I want, I want to feel the wounds. I want real evidence. That's, that's, that's so cool. We all kind of want that. See, because there is good evidence. In the, in the previous account, in, in the beginning of the chapter, we're told that Simon Peter comes running along and it says that he saw the strips in verse 6. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. Now that word saw means much more than just with the eyes. Not just means physical. It means to, to consider, to ponder, to process. So Peter's looking into the tomb and he's seeing Jesus' grave cloths lying there. And it's, his brain is ticking away. He's seeing evidence, concrete, physical evidence evidence and he's processing going well hang on a minute this is probably what he was thinking these great grave clothes are exactly the way they were when they wrapped jesus body now that means a few things if he had re re he if he had resurrected you know kind of come back to life as some people believe and walked out of the tomb then those clothes would be ripped he, he would have just torn them off to get it off them and he would have walked out so it's not that because they're all still there so if a friend of Jesus had come and stolen the body, as some other people claim, then why would they take his body out naked, which would have been a great shame in that day? That doesn't make sense. Now, he's thinking, well, what if an enemy came and stole the body? Well, again, why would they go to all the trouble of rolling up all the clots back and make it look like the body had resurrected? What would be the point of that? He's engaging with the evidence. He's thinking about it. He's processing what he's seeing to come to a reasonable, logical, rational conclusion. Jesus is alive. He's risen. One of the other pieces of evidence in, this, in John chapter 20 is that if the early disciples were going to actually manufacture a story about Jesus being risen, now I say this with no offense, they wouldn't have put a woman as being the first witness. It, it just, it would be stupid. 
Because in first century, a woman's word counted for absolutely nothing. They weren't allowed to testify in court. They, they weren't reliable witnesses at all in their society. Now, if you were going to make up a story that you wanted to spread throughout the world, why would you put a woman as the first witness? You're undermining your whole purpose by doing that. So the reasonable conclusion is, maybe it's actually true. It's so ridiculous. It's so ludicrous that God in His sovereignty would choose a woman to be the first witness Maybe it's actually true. So there is evidence. And here's a question I want to ask you. What kind of evidence would you need in order to believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God who rose from the dead? What kind of evidence would you need? Think about that for a moment. You see, I want to suggest to you that maybe, just maybe, that the first followers of Jesus, before they saw the risen Christ, needed the same evidence that you and I do. But sometimes we don't think that. We think, oh, they're ancient people. They're a little bit gullible. They're a little bit simple. They're not as advanced as we are. We are much more enlightened. You know, like they're a lot more superstitious. Partly true. Definitely, they were a lot more superstitious. But here's where that, that logic and that idea falls apart. Back in this time, yes, the people were more superstitious. But when it came to bodily resurrection, there was not one Jew, not one Greek, not one Roman that would have thought that that was remotely possible in history. Not one. Not one. So the most gullible, the most superstitious would not have even imagined that this was even remotely possible. That's why, not just Thomas, but that's why none of the other disciples were camped out in front of the tomb. Even though Jesus had told them repeatedly over and over again that he was going to rise from the dead. Not one of them was there. Because in their mind, that's not what they were conceiving of. And so I want to suggest to you that maybe, maybe they needed exactly the same kinds of concrete, tangible, physical evidence that you and I would need. And I want to suggest to you, that maybe, just maybe, the evidence that convinced them is sufficient to convince you. Think about that for a moment. You see, there was a story that was told about a guy called Robert Cheeseborough. You may have heard of him. Cool name. He was a guy who invented Vaseline that most of us would use. Vaseline is actually um, a wax that comes out of the shaft from an oil rig. And Robert Cheeseborough invented this stuff and he said you know what this stuff is going to be great it's going to heal scratches and scars and burns this is going to be this miracle product and he so believed in it that he would burn himself with acid and with flames he would cut himself he would poke himself with deep wounds and he would apply vaseline to prove that it worked and those wounds and scars were so deep in his body that years later he bore the marks on his body of his test. He was his own guinea pig to prove that Vaseline actually works. Now, I want to suggest to you that if you begin to actually look at the lives of the early disciples, every single one of them, just read the book of Acts, and you see what they were willing to endure for this belief that Jesus was risen from the dead. I want to suggest to you that maybe, like Robert Cheesebro, they were so convinced that this was true because the evidence was so convincing 
that they were willing to put their bodies on the line. They were willing to go boldly into the gladiators' arena, eaten by lions, burned as human torches. They were willing to be beaten and thrown in prison. And even today, Christians all over the world are so convinced that Jesus has risen from the dead that their bodies bear the marks of their faith because the evidence is solid. And I want to encourage you, if you're on that journey, maybe the evidence that convinced them might just convince you. The third thing about Christian faith is that it is deeply personal. It is deeply personal. Now, I love in this story that Thomas is saying, no, unless I see this evidence, I'm not going to believe. And then Jesus turns up. I I love this. Jesus turns up and he meets Thomas exactly at his point of need. It's personal. He says to Thomas, come on. Come on. You, you, You want to stick your fingers? Go right ahead. Stick your fingers in. You want to put your hand in my side? Yeah, come on. It's, it's profoundly personal. You see, every single person's story is different. Mary's encounter with Jesus is different. Peter's encounter with Jesus is different. Paul, on the road to Damascus, his encounter with Jesus is different. But every single one of them has a personal encounter with Jesus. It's not enough to kind of go, okay, God, I need you to supernaturally open my heart and open my eyes to see Jesus. It's not enough for me to look at the evidence and be convinced of the rationality of Christian faith. We all need to come to say, Jesus is my Savior. See, it's not enough for you to believe that Jesus died to save the sins of the world. Christian faith is about believing that Jesus died for my sin. He is my Savior. He is my Lord. Which is why Thomas 28, Thomas says, My Lord, my God. And he bows in worship. A personal encounter. There was a story, again, told of um, this engineer who worked for Boeing. In 1958, the U.S. launched the first jet commercial flight. Boeing had invented the first jet engine. And the story is told of um, this passenger on an old school propeller DC-9 who was on a journey and he, he struck up a conversation with the guy sitting next to him. And they start chatting and, and he found out that he worked for Boeing and he was one of the engineers that worked on the jet. And so he was very intrigued and it's like, that's great, you know, tell me more about it. And so the, the engineer was telling him the design, and the research that went into it and all the hard work and the years of experience that Boeing has had with lots of other jets and that it was going to be completely safe to fly these new jet planes. And so the passenger turns to him and said, so have you been on one? This is about a month later. And he's like, no, no way. I'm not going to risk that. I'm going to wait till you know, more, there's been more planes that have gone up in the air before I'll get on a plane. And sometimes we can be like that. It's one thing for us to believe that, yeah, Jesus came and he died. And yeah, maybe he rose again. But the question is, but do you, do you believe him to be your Savior, your Lord? Personal faith, personal commitment. You see, each of these disciples had so had a revelation of Jesus, had so been impacted by the evidence that they touched and saw and the encounters that we had. The Bible says that 500 people saw the risen Jesus and they ate with him and they hung out with him. They were so convinced, they were so transformed personally as they each said, my Lord and my God, and they bowed in worship, that it affected their lives so profoundly, it transformed their lives so deeply that they went on 
to do incredible works so that others would hear this great news. You see, once you have a personal encounter with Jesus, it leaves you changed. It leaves you transformed. You will never be the same. You cannot be the same. It shifts something in your heart. It draws out this wonderful worship. No wonder we call you Savior. It propels you out towards others so that they too would discover the wonder of Jesus that you've come to know. And this church is full of people who've encountered Jesus that way and are living radically different lives because they're never going to go back to the life that they had before they met Jesus because they're just different. Personal encounter. And so I want to ask you as we kind of launch into a, a second time of worship as we conclude this service, where are you at in your journey? Where are you at? Maybe you've been looking at the evidence, you've been doing the research, you've been studying hard, and yet nothing's happening on the inside. I want to encourage you, do something daring. Ask Jesus to open your eyes so that you can see Him. Ask Jesus to take you more than your reason and your rationality and say, Jesus, will you show me? It's scary because everyone I know who's prayed that prayer has had an answer in one way or another. Jesus, will you show me yourself? If you're real, if you do exist, if you're really risen from the dead, will you show me? I encourage you to do that. But maybe you've, like Malchus and the centurion, you've had kind of some experience and some initial encounter with Jesus, but... You're struggling, you've got doubts, you're skeptical like Thomas and you're, you're wanting evidence. And friend, I want to tell you there's, there's ample and we'd love to help you on that journey. We'd love to talk you through and show you some evidence that will help you shore up and strengthen your faith. And at the end of this service, on your way out, we've got some packs and Lewis will be there. And he'd love to talk with you and give you a pack. And if you'd like to meet up and kind of look at some stuff and historical evidence, and we're happy to do that. We want to help you on your journey. And I encourage you, if you have doubts and you're wrestling, please do that. Take a pack, have a read, and have a chat with Lewis. And we would love to help you explore the evidence for Christ. Watch the movie, Lee Strobel's movie, The Case for Christ. came out a little few months ago. You can get it, I think, in lots of places as he went on that journey of exploring the evidence for Jesus as a skeptic, as a doubter, as an unbeliever, and he came to believe that it's all true. Thirdly, maybe you're in that place of just needing an encounter with Jesus. You've looked at the evidence and you're reasonably convinced, but you haven't had a personal encounter with Jesus. And I want to tell you and invite you to take a risk this morning. Will you come at the end of this service as people are leaving to go to morning tea and let us pray with you. Let us pray for you that Jesus, like he did with Thomas, will not come and condemn you, will not embarrass you because of your doubts, will not ridicule you because of your unbelief, but that he will graciously encounter you and meet you where you're at. See, one of the most profound things in that story is the grace in action. You see, Thomas didn't do anything to deserve Jesus reappearing. In fact, it seems like Jesus just appeared solely for the benefit of Thomas. That's grace. Thomas wasn't a, he was a doubter. He was struggling. And yet Jesus in his grace turns up 
And see, grace is not just the vehicle that brings us to faith. It's also the content of our faith. It's what we actually believe in, that God, in His mercy, in His grace, has extended forgiveness to us, not because of our good works, not because of our religious observances, not because we come to church on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, but because Jesus died as our Savior. And if we are willing to trust in Jesus' death and resurrection to make us right with God, then the Bible says we are forgiven. And we are no longer under the wrath of God, but we become the children of God. That is all through grace. And you can have that encounter this morning. And I invite you, encourage you, don't leave here without that assurance of Jesus having encountered you. Let us pray with you this morning as we conclude this service and people go out. Don't leave here without taking that opportunity to encounter Jesus for yourself. Lastly, which I'm assuming is the majority of us here, maybe you're here and you've experienced all of what I'm talking about and you're just busting to worship Jesus. You're here to celebrate. You're here to say, Jesus, you are like Thomas, my Lord and my God. And I bow before you in humility and in worship. And I want to give you praise and glory and honor because you have saved me, because you have redeemed me, because you are my helper, my king, my deliverer, my rescuer. Lord, you are all, all of me. And I want to give all of me to you in worship in commitment, in dedication, in service. And I want all of my life to be about declaring your wonder and your glory to others. If that's you, then that's what we're going to do. We're going to conclude this service by praising our God. So why don't you stand with me? I'm going to hand over to Andy. And then at the end, I'm just going to come and remind you of some of those responses. And also, in case I forget, which sometimes I do forget things, on your way out for all of us, at the back there's some material representing the resurrection of Jesus. On Friday we had the cross that we took our struggles to and we nailed to. Today we have the promises of Jesus to take away with us. So on your way out, just grab a card. There's different colors and different ones. Just grab one. Not go, oh, I like the red. Oh, the orange one's nice too. Oh, the blue one's really pretty. Just take one so we make sure that everyone gets one. We have a second service as well. And again, as a a reminder that our Lord and our God is alive. And He still speaks. And He still works. And He still does. And He is all I need. Amen.